Second Chronicles chapter 36. We've made it to the end. Good times. So, over the past almost year and couple months, we've went through the book of First and Second Chronicles. We've seen the first nine chapters of First Chronicles. We've seen me butcher millions of names as we went through the genealogies of the people of Judah. Uh, we've seen the reign of King David and uh, him unifying the nation uh, together. And we've also seen the reign of Solomon when he asked for wisdom, but we know at the end of his reign that the nation would end up being divided again. So we've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly with the nation of Judah. And I think somewhere along the line I mentioned uh, the reign of these kings of kind of being like a, a, a roller coaster ride. You would have a good king, then you would have a bad king, then you would have a good king again. Then we'd be back to a bad king. Uh, so they went almost 490 years of doing this, going back and forth. And, and, and through it all, God would keep his promise to King David by keep, keeping one of his, uh, his lineage on the throne up to this point that we're, we're going to read about today. Um, we also see God giving grace and mercy to the nation of Judah, even when maybe they didn't need mercy or they didn't deserve the mercy, we would see God step in. Even maybe when they didn't deserve the grace, God would step in. And that's kind of been a theme throughout these two books. Even in the books of First and Second Kings, we've seen God's grace and mercy saturate these pages of Scripture. 490 years of a roller coaster ride, and God was still having patience with the nation of Judah. I think God is still having patience with us here in America right now. But as we're going to see when we get to the end of this chapter, we're going to see that it is going to be to a point where there was no remedy. God had to execute that judgment that he had spoke to Hezekiah and he had also spoke to Josiah, a judgment that was going to come on them regardless of how the leaders reacted, that this judgment had to come. So we're going to get started going through this, uh, through the verses, taking a look of how God took the nation of Judah, brought them into captivity, but we're going to see his grace and mercy at the end once again. He hadn't forgot about his people as they're going to go into captivity for 70 years. But we're going to see in the end how he's going to bring them back to Jerusalem once again. So let's go ahead and start in verse 1 of chapter 36. It says, Then the people of the land took Jeho- Jehoaz, the son of Josiah, and made him king in his father's place in Jerusalem. So we see that we had the death of Josiah, a death that probably could have been avoided if he would have just mind his own business and listened to the word of God that was given to the Pharaoh, saying that, hey, God is sending me on a mission. I had nothing to do with you, but he decided to stick his neck somewhere where it didn't belong, and Josiah was killed. So now we see here it says that the people chose a new king. They chose his son to be the next king. And, and this decision was made because they knew they were going to have issues with Egypt 
after what Josiah had done. He knew that Egypt was going to come back and probably start to mess with them and even put them under tribute at some point in time. So they picked the king that they thought, Jehoaz, that was going to be the most anti-Egypt king that they probably could have found. Now, this is the third son of Josiah. So the first one, firstborn, didn't take the reign. The second one didn't take the reign. The people chose the third one because they figured that he would be the one that would stand up against the pharaoh there in Egypt. But we're going to be, they were, they were sadly mistaken on that particular uh, decision. So in verse 2 it says, Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. It's not a very long reign. It says, now the king of Egypt deposed him or dethroned him in Jerusalem, and he imposed on the land tribute of 100 talents of silver and a talent of gold. Then the king of Egypt made Jehoahaz's brother, Eliakim, king over Judah and Jerusalem, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. And Necho took Jehoahaz, his brother, and carried him off to Egypt. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. So we see Pharaoh Necho coming back, taking the king back to Egypt and placing his brother on the throne. Now his brother was said to be more of a sympathizer to Egypt and that he pretty much became the Pharaoh's puppet. And we know that Jehoahaz was not the puppet for Egypt, that he was against what Egypt was doing. So there was definitely a contrast between the two brothers and what could be done. And uh, also by the Pharaoh sitting there telling, uh, telling Eliakim and changing his name. Is this showing how that Pharaoh had dominance over that region? That he changed the king, and when the new king came on, he changed the name of that king. Showing that, hey, I am ruling this area. We're going to put you under tribute. And this is something that Judah definitely did not want to have. And then it talks about Jehoiakim's reign. He reigned 11 years as the king there in Judah, but they don't speak much about his reign at all. What the author will tell you is that he did evil in the sight of God. Basically, he started reintroducing all the idolatry that had been rampant before jo- Josiah became king, whenever Manasseh and, uh, and, and then were, were ruling and all the idolatry he brought in. We see these kings, which will be the last four kings, for the nation of Judah before they go into captivity, bringing back in all the idolatry that was there beforehand. And I'm looking at this, and we think about the reforms that Josiah had put into place. It was all superficial. I believe Josiah definitely wanted the change and wanted the reform. I believe that Jeremiah and some of his associates wanted to change and wanted to reform. But beyond that, the people did not change because we see how quickly after Josiah dies, they're turning right back into idolatry. And so much of Christianity today, I believe in the churches, is superficial because I think when the, when the, the pressure comes and the persecution starts, there's going to be many Christians that are going to be running because their faith is not built on the rock. Their faith is built on shifting sand. 
And we see the same thing here, that as soon as Josiah uh, dies and his sons take over, they go right back into the idolatry because their faith was never in Jehovah to begin with. And we look, things starting to move rapidly as these four kings are starting to take over. We're going to read about uh, in 600, 605 B.C., the Egyptians were driven from Carchemish. Remember, that's where Necho was going to fight the battle. They were driven from there and driven back into Egypt by Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar actually had to take a break from driving out Egypt because his father had died. So he had to go back to Babylon for about a year. But then a year later in 604 B.C., he returned to take care of the rest of Egypt and drive them back to their borders. And while this was happening, uh, during Jehoiakim's reign, we, we see some of the first waves of captives being taken back to Babylon from Judah. And Daniel was actually included in that one of the first waves going back, uh, back into Babylon. So we see here Jehoiakim is reigning. He did evil in the sight of God. And as we get into verse 6, we're going to see more of what Nebuchadnezzar did. In verse 6, it says, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against him, talking about Jehoiakim, and carried off some of the articles from the house, I'm sorry, came up against him and bound him in bronze fetters to carry him off to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also carried off some of the articles from the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in the temple in Babylon. If you read verse 6, it says, that he, that King Nebuchadnezzar uh, carried, it says, came up against him and bound him in bronze fetters to carry him off to Babylon. There is something that, that I, I was reading that they don't believe he actually got carried off to Babylon, that he actually died right there in Jerusalem. And there's a uh, somewhat of a prophecy in Jeremiah 22, 18 and 19, and this is what it reads. They, they, well, they think that he, they suggested that he was probably humiliated in front of Judah, kind of put there to be a warning to the people to not to come against Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar. And in uh, Jeremiah twenty-two eighteen and 19, it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, they shall not lament for him, saying, Alas, my brother, or alas, my sister, they shall not lament for him, saying, Alas, master, or alas, his glory. He shall be buried with the burial of a donkey, dragged and cast out beyond the gates of Jerusalem. So what they're thinking is happening here is that he, was, he may have gone to meet Nebuchadnezzar for whatever reason, and he was, he was killed there. They're thinking maybe that he was suicide, maybe he committed suicide, or maybe... Maybe he was assassinated by maybe even one of those in Judah. They're not completely sure how he died, but they do know that his body may have been put at the gates of Jerusalem to rot and to be a warning to anybody who would want to stand up against Babylon. That's not a great way to go at all. So they're thinking that this is lining up with what the prophecy here in Jeremiah 22. And then verse 7, it goes on and tells us that they took some articles from the temple. So here we go, the stripping down of the temple, all the gold and silver uh, utensils they have there are being taken from Jerusalem to Babylon to be set up. 
And they, they think that this is also here indicating that the holy things of God were slowly being taken away from Judah and being brought to Babylon, where the people themselves were destined to go. We just talked about how Hezekiah and Josiah were both told that the people of Judah were going to go into exile, that they were going to go into captivity in Babylon. So these are things that were told beforehand, and now we're seeing the reality, reality of it happening here in Scripture. Moving on to verse 8, it says, Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim, the abominations which he did, and what was found against him, indeed, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. Then Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his place. So now we're moving on to the third king before captivity. Verse 9, it says, Jehoiachin was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months and ten days, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now here it's saying that he is eight years old. Uh, I have a reference here that's saying that it may actually be 18 years old. So the translators had a little, little, little error, not error, but a little tough time trying to figure whether it was 8 or 18. Um, but at the turn of the year, King Nebuchadnezzar summoned him and took him to Babylon with the costly articles from the house of the Lord and made Zedekiah, Jehoiakim's brother, king over Judah and Jerusalem. So to give a brief description of Jehoiachin and what he'd done, and he was doing the same thing the rest of the kings were doing, going into idolatry, doing things that were not of the Lord. They were very much contrary to the Lord. And we see that he had a short reign here and that he was brought off to Babylon as well. And now we are seeing the fourth king, Zedekiah, the fourth and last king that Judah would have before going into captivity. And we talk about these kings and the evil they did. They, had, they forced a lot of their own people into, into labor, into slave labor, and, and the evil and the monstrosities that they did. And we see that God's eyes do not escape the evil that was being done to Judah. God's eyes don't escape the things we do, even though we act like we try and hide from them, like children trying to hide when they do something wrong, or my dogs will try and hide when they do something wrong, but they can't be out of my sight. And we're never out of the sight of God. He sees the good and the bad that we do. So we got to keep that in mind. Jehoiakim is now replaced, which we've seen by his son Jehoiachin, and then he is now replaced by Zedekiah. So things are moving pretty rapid here for the nation of Judah as they're going into captivity. Jerusalem is stripped of almost every experienced leader they had. When Babylon came into Judah and they they were taking them into captivity, they were taking the smartest and the strongest people that Judah had to offer. And pretty much what you were left with was the riffraff uh, that was there, the poor. Maybe those who aren't so smart. That's who Zedekiah had left to deal with in the nation of Judah. Because Babylon was not going to take that. They were going to take the best that Judah had to offer. So you had men of small minds. And his only hope that Zedekiah would have was to maybe throw in his lot with Jeremiah, throw in his lot with God, and turn towards God for guidance. 
turn towards God to be able to protect what was left of Judah. You would think he would do that. But we see here that he did not do that. He did not throw his lot in with God, but that he would throw it in further into the idolatry which Judah had been sitting under over these kings over the past years and would not listen to what Jeremiah would have to say. So in verse 11, it says, uh, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, his God, and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. So we see Jehoiakim, that he was doing evil in the eyes of God. And you would think as a son of David that he would maybe acknowledge God in this time of trouble. I'm pretty sure he heard the stories of the faith of David, faith of Solomon, and some of these other kings that were good kings, but he would decided to go the way of the evil kings. Instead, he would follow the idols. And he talked about him falling in line with Jeremiah. Now, in fact, Jeremiah preached over 40 years to the people of Judah who were going into captivity. Forty years he preached. And it seems that no one responded to his ministry at all. Can you imagine? Forty years of serving God. Preaching the truth to these people. Warning them of the upcoming captivity. Warning them of, of their, their, their idolatrous ways. And nobody responds. I think of some missionaries that sometimes go out to these foreign countries and they're called by God to go. They're called by God to go spread the gospel and to spread the good news and there seems to be no fruit from their efforts out there. And they may die and another missionary comes in, all kind of fruit. But that groundwork they laid paid off. And Jeremiah is going to go down in eternity as one of the greatest prophets of the Bible. Everyone knows Jeremiah. And we got to remember that God doesn't call us to be successful in ministry. But God has called us to simply be faithful to what he has called us to do, regardless of what it is, whether it's preaching behind a pulpit, working in the child's ministry, worship, Ministry at your own home or with your neighbors or with your relatives. He doesn't call you to be successful, but he calls you to be faithful. And that's what he's asking each and every one of us to be, to be faithful in what he has called each of us to do. Whether it's our work or it's our ministry or it's our family, we need to just remain faithful, regardless if we see the fruit coming or not. If God has called you to it and you know it, just go and do it. He'll take care of whatever he needs to take care of. So in verse 13, it says, And he also rebelled, so Zedekiah also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear an oath by God. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. So it was, I guess it was custom that the Babylonians or Nebuchadnezzar would make these uh, kings or these rulers of these areas swear to their own God. So he had to swear to Jehovah that he would not turn on Babylon, that he would be faithful to Babylon. But we see here that he's going, he wants to rebel against King Nebuchadnezzar and fight against him. 
But the only problem is he has no backing because he turned to idolatry and would not turn to Jehovah God. But he still decided to rebel and, and stiffen his neck against King Nebuchadnezzar, and that was not going to work out very good with God not on your side. So, verse 14 says, Moreover, the leaders of the priests and the people transgress more and more according to all the abomination of the nations and defiled the house of the Lord which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. So we see as Zedekiah would fall into idolatry, we see the rest of the people there in Judah would transgress and fall further and further away from God. In verse 15, it says, And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. That is a scary place to be when you're defying God and there is no longer a remedy for you. There is no longer salvation ready for you because you have defied God all this time. We see the people hardening their hearts there in verse 14 and continuing to do evil in the sight of God. And then we hear that there is no longer a remedy. They're going to have to go into captivity at this point in time. That had to be a scary moment in hearing that. And it wasn't that God didn't try to get them to come back to him. It says here that the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by messengers. How many prophets have we read about in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles that were there warning the people of, of upcoming doom because why? They didn't follow the commands of God. They didn't follow the statues that were put out. And that was one of the main commands that God gave to David and gave to Solomon. Hey, Follow my commands, listen to my statutes, and guess what? You're going to have a blessed nation. Your life will be blessed. Sure, you're going to have hiccups. They called David a man after God's own heart. We've seen what David did. He was an adulterer and he was a murderer. But he repented. He never walked away from God. Not once did he walk away from God. Even though he would sin, he would always repent and come back to God. And that was the example of a king that all of Judah had to look at David. You want an example of how you should rule? Look at David. His heart was after God the whole time. But as time went on and new kings came in, that heart for God faded away. They didn't follow the commands anymore. They didn't follow the statutes. And we see that destruction and captivity is now going to come their way. And often in the Bible, they'll, it'll, it'll tell, they'll give God human characteristics. It says here, that uh, he was rising early and in, in early and sending them. We know God doesn't sleep. We know he's not rising, but it was to give you an example that God had an urgency to get this message out to his people for they would not go into captivity, that they would change their ways. And how urgent is the message we are sending out to the people that are out there 
hurting and lost? Do we have an urgency about getting his message out, even though they may laugh at us and mock us? Even though we may see no fruit like Jeremiah for 40 years of ministry, are we still willing to be faithful and go out and proclaim his word? Are we willing to get up early to pray for those that we care about and want saved? To read his word, to get built up and refueled for the day? Are we wanting to get up early and have that urgency to speak to people about the gospel at our work or in our, in our circle? And we see in verse 16, like we just said, that they've mocked the messengers. They mock the messengers of God today. And I hate to say it, but some of the people who call themselves messengers of God doesn't help our case at all. We have a lot of clowns sometimes that are behind the pulpit teaching a false gospel, making Christianity look stupid when it's not, when this is serious business, that this is something that needs to get spread. The truth of the gospel, the real gospel needs to get put out. The real Jesus needs to be put out to the masses. And you will have those people that will mock you. You will have those people that will laugh at you. The Lord himself said that was going to happen, that you're going to be persecuted for your faith. And we see in the, in the New Testament, the apostles, how they were, they were persecuted for their faith and ki- even killed for their faith. Is our faith that strong? Is our faith to that point? And that's something you're going to have to answer yourself. But we need to push out his message, just like God here would rise early to push out the message to the people. Regardless if they listen or not, our job is to be faithful and put the message out. Verse 17, it says, Therefore he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, on the aged or the weak. He gave them all into his hands. Therefore he brought against them. Who is he? God. God brought against Judah, the king of the Chaldeans. God allows these things to happen. Judgment was going to come to a nation that now had no remedy for them to be able to turn back. They have almost exhausted the patience of God. And now it was time for them to pay for their sins. So we see God pushing the kings of Chaldeans in, having no mercy on the men, women, young, old. It didn't matter. They slaughtered them. And those who end up not being slaughtered were taken back into captivity. So God, when we see certain events in the world, we have to realize that God is running this world. God is allowing certain events and things in history to happen because he has a will that needs to be fulfilled. He has reasons behind it even when we can't see it. Even when we don't understand and it seems horrible, God has a reason, and that reason ends up being good, whether we agree with it or not. In verse 18, it goes on, And all the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king, of his leaders, all these he took to Babylon. So we see the continuous looting of Judah and the temple being brought back to Babylon. In verse 19, it says, Then they burned the house of God, broke down the walls of Jerusalem, burned all in its uh, palaces with fire and destroyed all of its precious possessions. 
And those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the king, kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the words of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbath. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So in the book of Leviticus, chapter 25, they talk about how the Sabbath was to be handled by the nation of Israel overall. And it was to be every seven years they were to take a Sabbath for the land, to let the land rest. So the people would work the land and work for those six years. Come to six years, God would double what they would have to be able to take care of them through that Sabbath year. And we see here, for 490 years, they did not keep that Sabbath. Now God's saying, you owe me. You owe me those 70 years worth of Sabbath. Because if you take 490 divided by 7, you get 70. So God is precise and accurate in what he's doing. He's a man of his word. You took away 70 years of Sabbath from me. Now I'm going to get it back for my land and for Jerusalem. And you're going to go into captivity for those 70 years until that Sabbath is paid up. So we see the nation of Judah go into captivity in Babylon for those 70 years until the nation or kingdom of Persia was to come on the scene. So we know the Persians came in, overran the Babylonians, and now we're going to see about King Cyrus who ended up taking over that area. So the last two verses, it says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord uh, by... But hold on, let me reread it. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me. And he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who is among you of all his people. May the Lord, his God, be with him and let him go up. So we see the decree from King Cyrus of Persia that was made. And just like God had stirred up the Chaldeans to go in and slaughter the people in Judah, we see here that God is, is, is stirring up the spirit of Cyrus. God stirs up the spirits of the leaders in this world to accomplish his will. When President Obama was in office, he was there because God ordained that to be. Just like he ordains President Trump to be in office right now. And whoever wins in November is ordained by God to be in that office. Whether you like them or not, they're there, and God has a, has a purpose for them to stir up their hearts to get his will done, whether we like it or not. So we see God stirring up the heart of Cyrus. Those 70 years are now over. 70 years have already passed here between 21 and 22. 
Seventy years have already gone by. And now it's time to bring Judah back to the promised land, back to Jerusalem. And with Cyrus on the throne, he says, whoever was willing was free to go up to return to Jerusalem, back to their home. God tells us too, whoever will, he will take them up and take them back home. And you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to turn there. Revelations 22, verse 17 says, And the Spirit and the Bride says, Come, and let him who hears say, Come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. King Cyrus is telling him, Whoever wants to go, go up. Go back up to Jerusalem. Go back up and rebuild the house of God. And we, as a people, as a body of Christ, we need to go and return back to the Lord and go up to his throne. We need to go back because the Lord knows what is best for us. He's telling us whoever wants to come to him can drink of that water. Whoever wants to go up can go up. No matter where we've been or how long we've been in captivity, God is telling us now, come up. Come up and enjoy the freedom I want to give you. Come up and enjoy your salvation. And we see here that God will tell us to occupy until he comes back. To go up and occupy, because that's what they were going to do. They were going to go back to Jerusalem and occupy Jerusalem again. They were going to rebuild the temple. They are going to rebuild the wall all for the glory of God, and to occupy that land again. And that's what we have to do here on earth. We need to occupy until he comes. Continue to work. Continue to to rise early to get the gospel out. Continue to be a witness for him and do the work that he's asked us to do, to be faithful, not necessarily successful, but to be faithful in what he's asked us to do, to occupy the land. Amen? So next week, we're going to start the book of Ezra. So we're just going to follow suit and go on to the next book. So, Father, we uh, do come to you tonight. And we want to go up, Father God. We want to occupy this land for you, Lord, and to continue to do the work and be faithful to do the work, Lord, that you have asked us to do. And each one of us has our our own separate mission from you, Father God. Just help us to be faithful in doing that job that you've assigned each of us, Father God. Help us to be a witness. Help us to rise early, Lord, to to be trained in your word, to be able to go out and spread your word and, and to be a witness for you here, Lord, as we occupy until you return. We ask for the blessings of each and everyone here tonight. We ask for our safe traveling homes, Lord, and bless those who were not able to make it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.